Hi, I'm Jimmy Coe. And I'm Stephen Hawk. And we're the host of the Cosmic Sponge Podcast, where we explore the unknown from UFOs and cryptids to unexplained disappearances and ancient mysteries. If you're looking for strange stories that will keep you on the edge of your seat, jump on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or search for Cosmic Sponge on your favorite listening platform. Head on over to our website at www.cosmicsponge.com to get access to all of our content, including a full list of platforms where you can enjoy the show. Hi, Techie Joe here. I work with Ace and Knight and some of the best psychics in West Virginia to create amazing live streams and podcasts for the Psychic Coffee Shop Network. Together, we brew up great content discussing news, events, hot topics, and more, all from a psychic perspective. On the Psychic Coffee Shop, we interview amazing authors in the metaphysical realm. Coffee and Tea combines Asen with Tracy, Dottie, Natalie, or Lady Gwendolyn for the good and the bad of being a psychic. Shameless self-promotion with Dottie the Psychic talks to leading and emerging YouTubers and business owners in our community. Mountain Bears brings you the latest in LGBT news and politics. The Psychic That Plans answers the question of, well, how a psychic plans. Plus, we're live on air. We take your comments and your questions, including psychic advice questions. Check out our amazing programming, book an appointment with top psychics, and find out all the wonderful things we have to offer at pcsbnetwork.com today. Obviously, this episode did not come out on the full moon like it normally does. I ended up with some sort of flu-type thing that lingered for about two weeks, and it prevented me from doing pretty much anything. Honestly, I wasn't sure I was even going to be able to release an episode this month. Luckily, my health is improving, and I have a few extra days off work, which means that I actually get a chance to play catch-up. Thank you for being patient with me while I recovered especially those of you who donate to the Esoteric Archive. I really appreciate your patience. In the Annals of Research on Extraordinary Experience, there are certain cases that are so strange that they stand out from the crowd. These are stories of experiences and events that are far weirder than, for example, the slightly above-chance evidence for Psy revealed in parapsychological experiments, or the average ghost encounter or UFO sighting. These experiences are utterly bizarre and cannot be neatly classified or easily understood. They are experiences that fall between the established categories of paranormal research and academics. This is the deep weird. 2020 is so fucking wild that the Pentagon just confirmed UFOs, and it's barely news. Santiago Meyer, Executive Director of Voters of Tomorrow. Of all the various things going on in the world at that time, the Pentagon's announcement about UFOs was met with a thunderous meh except in a few scattered corners of the internet where people were exclaiming, I knew it, from their dimly lit basement headquarters. At this point, I feel like most Americans just accept that UFOs, in the general sense, are a real phenomena. 
There's things in our skies that we just can't identify. We've seen that recently with all these spy balloons being shot down. Of course, the U.S. government is very good at overly complicating things. So they renamed UFOs to Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP for short. This is Postscript Editing Jason coming in to say that I just recently found out that UAP no longer stands for Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. As of February of 2023, it now stands for Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena. While it does describe things in a more broad sense, allowing for better categorization, no one, even within the government itself, has ceased calling them UFOs. That said, unidentified aerial phenomena isn't the sole topic of this book. This book is called Deep Weird, so you know that it's going to be the strangest of the strange. But it's a bit more than that. It covers a wide array of topics in Fortiana, but it also addresses the methods by which we look at and analyze these topics. Methods like the Extraordinary Encounter Continuum, proposed in 1986, and research tools like Project Hera, are elaborated upon by various authors. Sometimes, like in the case of Project Hera, they are written by the people actively and directly involved in the project itself. For some readers, this book may be a bit tedious, but for those of you who enjoy both the larger view and the minutia of Fortiana, you will be enthralled by Deep Weird, The Varieties of High Strangeness Experience, edited by Jack Hunter. I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. This show is made possible by the members of the Esoteric Archive, specifically Annie Kay, Soul Rising Studios, and Grand Inquisitor Samantha. Your contributions help me pay server costs, purchase reading material, and slows my inevitable return to the Stygian Forest from whence I came. They really do have the best mushrooms there. If you would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All members get early access to shows. Those pledging $3 or more get extended episodes. And those pledging $5 or more get access to the Esoteric News Briefs. Once again, that's patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. Now, let's get weird. Before we get started with our book tonight, I want to take a look at a recent article from John Beckett on his blog, Under the Ancient Oaks. How should you get your first tarot deck? There's a lot of superstition about this. 
The first, and easily the most irritating from the point of view of a shopkeeper, is that you shouldn't buy your first deck. This would be fine if you had someone gift you with a tarot deck, but 99% of the time, this is the excuse that people use when they shoplift their first deck. There's also competing advice, which is equally bad, saying that you can't use a second-hand tarot deck. I honestly don't know where this idea came from. Sometimes this is the only way that you can acquire certain decks that are out of print. What if you are fortunate enough to get a deck that is antique? What if the deck is passed down to you from a family member or a mentor? Are you just going to ignore the cards? Hopefully the answer is no, because otherwise that would just be rude. This idea applies to all magical objects. In his article, Beckett isn't suggesting that you take secondhand ritual or magical objects and immediately use them, quote, out of the box. Obviously, they will need to be cleansed. But what does it mean to cleanse the item? Are you going to wash it with soap and water? I suppose in some cases, yes, this could be an option, but this is rather rare. John uses the example of his kitchen. He cleans up after cooking, yes, but seldom does he do a deep clean. It's possible to do this, sure, but it's not necessary to move the appliances, bleach every surface, and clean under the refrigerator after every meal. The same can be said about ritual objects or divination tools. Let's continue with the kitchen metaphor. What if you found a nice hand-forged kitchen knife at a second-hand store? You've seen these knives before, and you know that they are prohibitively expensive when purchased new. You jump on this opportunity and buy the knife. Are you going to go home and immediately start preparing dinner with that knife? No, of course not. You're going to wash it first, right? That's the exact idea behind ritual cleansing. These items aren't bad just because they're second-hand. They just need a bit of TLC. Bonus points if you're actually listening to 90s pop sensation TLC while you're doing your cleansing. Cleansing allows us to remove impurities. As John elaborates, quote, An impurity isn't something that's bad. It's something that's unhelpful where it is even though it may be very helpful in other places and in other contexts." End quote. So what sort of impurities would be found on ritual objects if not physical dirt and grime? It is widely believed in magical and pagan circles that every time you use an object, a bit of your own energy rubs off on it. It's like an energetic fingerprint, and in some cases, literal fingerprints. The more an object is handled and used, the more fingerprints it acquires. This also applies to specific uses of the object. If it were dedicated to a specific deity and used frequently in service to that deity, it would need a spiritual reset before it could be used for something or someone else.
If nothing else, it's common courtesy. If you gave someone a gift, you wouldn't want it to have property of Joe Schmo written on it in Sharpie, would you? No, of course not. Sometimes, we are the ones in need of cleansing. Imagine you have a date after work. It's not immediately after your shift, so you have plenty of time to go home first. Are you going to spend that time playing on your phone? Or are you going to get a shower? Chances are, you're going to take that shower. But why? Because you're trying to present yourself as the best version of yourself. That is what cleansing does on a spiritual level. If objects can pick up gunk by being handled, imagine what we can pick up simply by existing in society. So when you are doing ritual or prayer, John advises that you do at least a basic cleansing. Using the date metaphor again, even if you don't have time to shower after work, you will probably go to the restroom and wash your face and check your hair, right? The same goes for spiritual cleansing. At least put in some sort of effort. Unless, of course, like John, you follow Sir Nunos. He's a literal personification of nature, so he doesn't seem to mind if you have a bit of dirt on you. Heck, he may actually appreciate it. I think you get the general idea. Now, before we switch over to the book, I want to read you a quote from this article that I found to be exceptionally poignant. Because it is so important, I'm going to read it verbatim. Quote, To be clear, cleansing with sage is not cultural appropriation. Cleansing with sage in a Native American ceremony when you're not Native American is cultural appropriation and shouldn't be done. End quote. No need for me to elaborate further. I believe that sums it up quite nicely. If you want to read the full article, I will link it in the show notes. Now, let's move on to tonight's featured book, Deep Weird, The Varieties of High Strangeness Experience, edited by Jack Hunter. So, Hunter has a PhD but doesn't always go by doctor. I'm not really sure how to refer to him in this context, so I'm going to default to how he refers to himself on the cover of this book and simply call him Jack. Jack Hunter is an anthropologist exploring the borderlands of consciousness, religion, ecology, and the paranormal. His PhD at the University of Bristol took the form of an ethnographic study of contemporary trance and physical mediumship. He is a teacher and a tutor of... a lot of different things. This guy does everything from ecology to astronomy, astrology, spirituality, and even the humanities. He is also a musician and an ordained Dudist priest. He has written a ton of articles and blogs, contributed to 14 anthologies, was the editor for eight books, and either wrote or co-wrote seven additional books. 
And what I really, really like is that he posts all of his interviews and podcast appearances on his blog. Obviously, I'll post a link to his website in the show notes. So I'm going to ease you into this book through the introductory chapter written by Jeff Kripal. According to Kripal, researchers need to move beyond questioning whether or not extraordinary events actually took place and instead ask why or how they happened. It's no longer effective to debate whether or not a high strangeness event is real because to the people who experience it, it is real. Kripal says that he, quote, came to terms with the deep weird by not coming to terms with it. That may seem confusing at first, but let me assure you, the weird is always going to be weird. Just when you think you've made sense of something, you'll be proven wrong in 13 different ways. So let's move beyond questioning if, and instead move on to ask, why? Next, we need to understand what the weird is. The modern word weird comes from the Anglo-Saxon word, also weird, but spelled with a Y, and is defined as the invisible connecting principle that links seemingly unrelated phenomena in a meaningful way. Originally, it seems to share a lot in common with synchronicity. In the modern age, weird is synonymous with strange, uncanny, or bizarre. Now, deep weird. Deep weird is when you take these terms to the limits of believability. The threshold of this limit of believability is known as the boggle threshold. Let me give you an example. Let's say that Mary saw a Bigfoot. Some people out there adamantly refuse to believe in the possibility of the creature, so their boggle threshold is pretty low. Continuing on, Mary saw a Bigfoot at the beach. Okay, that's a little less common, but still within the realm of believability. Now what if I told you that this Bigfoot had an electric guitar and was staring into the sunset as he played Night Train by Guns N' Roses. Have we lost you yet? No? Well, what if I told you that once the song ended, the Bigfoot was picked up by a UFO, and before leaving, the creature turned to Mary and telepathically said, No one will ever believe you. I know my listeners pretty well, so I know that there are at least some of you who are totally on board with this, just for the sake of being obstinate. But 99% of the people listening will say that this scenario is utterly ridiculous. Which it is, I totally made that up. Although the song choice was deliberate. In my notes, I wrote down that Night Train was playing in a loop in my head as I was reading this chapter, and I have no idea why. The whole point of this story was so that you could pinpoint the exact time where you stopped finding the encounter credulous. Everyone has a boggle threshold, but for some of us it's a bit more broad. 
some investigative paranormal organizations have a built-in boggle threshold in the form of their introductory surveys. They deliberately ask filter questions to weed out things that they don't find credible. To some degree, this is understandable. There's people out there who just want to tell a story and become famous, or infamous, for perpetuating a hoax. There's also some groups out there that will deliberately filter out any portion of an event that doesn't fit into their specific paradigm. Let's say that Mary decided to report her encounter to a Bigfoot organization. They may listen to her story, but because they are investigating from the point of view that Bigfoot is an undiscovered ape species, they simply don't record anything beyond the time and location of her sighting. Instead of recording all of the other fantastical things that happened during the encounter, they simply say, Bigfoot was spotted at Venice Beach at sunset. That's because the boggle threshold can be more than just personal. It can also be institutionalized. The last term that I want to define for you is the Oz Factor. This term was created by renowned UFO investigator Jenny Randalls, and it refers to the atmospheric change associated with high strangeness. It is, quote, a set of symptoms which create the impression of temporarily having left our material world and entered another dreamlike place with magical rules. End quote. While it sounds as if this would make the world seem upside down, it's usually indicated by an eerie silence and a sense of panic or dread, which stems from an unknown source. When I say an eerie silence, I'm not saying that it's just that the birds have stopped singing, although that is usually one indicator. This is a silence where there is almost no sound at all. The wind could be blowing, but there's no rustling sound from the leaves. Birds may be present, but they refuse to sing. The distant rumble of road noise is now completely absent. It's as if you've entered a vacuum, and the only sounds that you hear are the sounds that you, yourself, are making. That is the Oz Factor. So now that we have the basic concepts defined, let's look at some of the chapters in this book. Each chapter is written by a different author and elaborates on a tangentially related topic within High Strangeness. The first one I want to look at is entitled, Fairy Ain't What It Used To Be, The Traditional Versus Contemporary Fairies, by Simon Young. As you can tell from the title, fairies are depicted very, very differently in the modern age compared to how they were depicted in the past. In fact, fairy wasn't the term for an entity, but was instead referring to a place. The term fairies simply referred to entities that came from the realm of fairy. This realm isn't necessarily a physical location but more of a disposition of a place. That may seem a little confusing at first. Let's back up a little and use an example. 
Imagine that you walk the same dirt road every day without incident. One day, while you're walking through a particular part of this road, the Oz factor kicks in. Nothing visibly looks different, though everything feels different. You're familiar with this path. You've walked it countless times. But this time, you're not sure where it leads. Nothing seems the same, though you've not deviated from your original route. You look for landmarks, anything that would help you reorient yourself with your surroundings. But there's none to be found. Even the trees look foreign to you. Panic sets in as you realize that you're lost in a place that you've been over a thousand times. This is what I mean when I say that fairy is a disposition of a place rather than the place itself. It's as if the real world has been subtly painted over with unfamiliarity. What's really weird is that you could return to this same place tomorrow and everything would be back to normal. There's no rhyme or reason to why you ended up here, but it usually involves crossing a threshold or a barrier of some sort. Maybe you jumped a creek, or passed through a hedge, or even just walked in a specific direction around a tree or a mound. Who knows? As Young states in this chapter, Fairy is found just outside of society. It's just over the ridge, or through the hedge. It's not here, but it is close by. The creatures that come from Fairy are also interesting, in that they aren't quite human, but they tend to resemble humanity. In the earliest accounts, they looked to be about the size and form of children, of various ages, wearing similar clothing to each other, though not as if it were a uniform. These clothes tended to be silky and loose-fitting, oftentimes described to be flowing garments. They were associated with strange lights, music, and dance. They are described using the colors green, white, and black, though in most cases it is unclear whether this refers to the color of their clothing or as a description of the creature's complexion. When people conversed with these entities, it is made very clear that they are a part of a larger society, even if they are encountered alone. Young sums up the early description of fairies by saying that they aped humanity with a frenetic soap opera of tension, conflict, and resolution. Now, it is popular belief that fairies were driven out of Britain with the onset of Protestantism. People will say, we don't believe in them anymore, though our grandparents did. The trick is that this phrase has been repeated for several hundred years. It's never the current generation that believes. It's always those from the recent memory. It gets even stranger because as time progressed, the departure of fairies came to be blamed on different things. Steel, gunpowder, factories, railways, and, oddly enough, at one time, people even blamed school teachers. Basically, whatever was new in society was blamed for the departure of the fairies. But remember, 
Grandpa still believed in them, so they can't be gone. They're just actively leaving. So, why do we think of tiny winged creatures when someone says the word fairy? Blame the Victorians for this one. At some point in the mid to late 1800s, the classic pixie depiction became synonymous with fairies, and it just kind of stuck. The broad spectrum of being had been reduced to a singular form. Thanks to the invention of various forms of media, this image spread far and wide, specifically through photography and the widely popular hoax known as the Cottingley Fairies. Basically, a handful of illustrations were cut out of a book and then were arranged in a photo so that they appeared to be flying and dancing around a young girl. This hoax was perpetuated through a series of five photos beginning in 1917. Camera technology at the time was decent, though it still only shot in black and white. This gave the photographer a little more leeway when blending the illustrations into their surroundings. Since this time, there has been a revival of fairy lore in which traditional stories and beliefs are categorized to give us a better understanding of these varied entities. Simon Young has created several broad groupings to better help delineate what was seen in a fairy encounter. The first is the SWF, or Small Winged Fairy. This is the standard Victorian-era pixie. Think Tinkerbell, which is super accurate since Peter Pan was written during the Victorian era. Next is something he calls the Dwomes. It is a portmanteau of dwarves and gnomes, and is described as being, quote, anything from six inches to five feet tall, with no wings. They are often masculine and not conventionally beautiful. They are usually seen outside, wearing rough clothes in natural colors. Frequently connected to nature, dwomes are usually awkward in their interactions with humanity. Man, if I didn't know any better, I'd think he was describing me. Next up are the BOLs, or Balls of Light. I don't think I really need to explain this category too much, though I do want to point out that Balls of Light are often seen in conjunction with other high strangeness events. The next category is referred to as the Tinies. These are wingless individuals who are under 6 inches in height. They can be seen both indoors and outdoors, and unlike the solitary dwomes, the tinies are almost always encountered in groups. The final major category are the tresps, which is short for tree spirits. The most common depiction of these creatures is the green man, or the treants from Lord of the Rings. They are nature spirits often bound to the form of a tree. At this point, you are probably asking why this is included in a book called Deep Weird. Fairies seem rather antiquated, right? Well, the answer lies in the fairy census. Yes, you heard that correctly. The fairy census is an online database that collects and categorizes fairy encounters both ancient and modern. 
This means that anyone who has a strange encounter that they attribute to fairies can log on to this website and submit their story and have it archived. While it may seem like fairies are something that our grandparents believed in, this site shows that humanity is still having interactions with creatures from another realm. The next chapter that I want to look at is entitled The Extraordinary Encounter Continuum Hypothesis and Its Implications for the Study of Belief Materials by Peter Rochkowitz. Yeah, that's quite a mouthful, so we'll just refer to this as the Extraordinary Encounter Continuum. Most of us have heard of the Close Encounter Scale, used in modern ufology. If nothing else, you may have heard of the 70s Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which references this method of categorization. Popularized by J. Allen Hynek in 1972, this scale is used to rate an interaction in investigative shorthand. What most people don't realize is that the scale doesn't start at 1, but instead begins with general descriptors. It begins with nocturnal lights, moves on to daylight discs, now referring to any daytime observation of a craft, and then radar visual. Shockingly, most UFO sightings don't even achieve a numeric rating on this scale, so that should tell you how rare these encounters really are. A close encounter of the first kind requires that the UFO be sighted at close range, in this case meaning less than 500 feet. Basically, it needs to be close enough for the witness to see some measure of detail on the craft. Close encounters of the second kind are those that cause some sort of interaction or leave some measure of trace evidence. This could be anything from impressions in the ground to burns on the witness or even just electrical interference. Close encounters of the third kind are those in which an entity is present. There's not much more detail beyond this. The category doesn't place stipulations on what the entity is, what it's doing, or even whether or not it's organic. Yes, robots are included within this category. Since the initial release of the CE scale, two more categories have been unofficially added. Close encounters of the fourth kind are physical abductions by an extraterrestrial entity. Jacques Vallée proposed that this category should have a more broad definition to include any change to a person's sense of reality. This would allow for a non-physical abduction scenario where a person has an OBE, or an out-of-body experience. A close encounter of the fifth kind, now commonly referred to as CE5, is an interaction in which the witness has direct communication with an alien entity. Again, this wording is very specific, so it can include extra-dimensional creatures, synthetic entities, and non-verbal communication, not just words spoken by an extraterrestrial. Now this scale seems to cover a lot of scenarios, but according to Rutschkowitz, it is still too narrow. He has a few specific arguments that stem from the definition of UFO. Historically, 
anything that looked to be a craft of some sort was referred to as a flying saucer, which in itself is a misnomer. When we think of flying saucer, we think of a disc-shaped craft. But initially, that descriptor was used to describe how an object moved, not how it appeared. This term comes from the Kenneth Arnold sighting, in which he describes the craft moving as if it were a saucer skipping across the surface of water. After that, the term just seemed to stick. Like I mentioned earlier, Historically, if a witness saw something that they believed was a craft of some sort, the reports usually called it a flying saucer, not a UFO. The term UFO was reserved for an unidentified anomaly, as the name implies. Rochkowitz says that this is where things begin to fall apart. Granted, he has no problem with the unidentified part of the terminology. He begins by saying that the F in UFO is inadequate, since it implies a means of locomotion. Furthermore, it is implied that this locomotion is mechanical. This may seem strange, since there are plenty of animals that fly, but we don't normally refer to flying creatures as objects, do we? There has also been plenty of UFO sightings where the object was only seen on the ground, or conversely, beneath the surface of the ocean. Which leads us to the second part of his argument, which is that by calling them objects, we are implying that they are physical in nature. Why is this a problem? How often do we hear descriptions of objects either vanishing or zooming off at impossible speeds? Hell, sometimes the sighting is described as just light which implies that it may not even be a physical object, but instead could be comprised entirely of energy. Furthermore, what if the quote object is also an entity in itself? Finally, the term UFO, at least as it's currently used, implies that it is extraterrestrial in nature. It's something anomalous that is beyond our understanding of technology and propulsion, so naturally it can't be of human origin, right? Well, what if it's an alien species, but not from beyond the planet? What if they come from some other dimension, rather than from outer space? What if it's a breakaway civilization that has been in hiding? What if it's fairies, or angels, or even ghosts. This may seem ludicrous at first, but all of these hypothetical scenarios share a lot in common with alien abduction encounters. The only difference is the way that we interpret the events. What we now call alien was once called fairy, and even that was once called demonic. It's all about the cultural lens through which we are viewing the phenomena. So now you see why Rochkowitz is proposing the Extraordinary Encounter Continuum. Now that we understand the need for this change, what would this continuum look like? The EEC refers to any human confrontation with the anomalous, whether in the form of a being, entity, object, or unusual light. Great! That sounds awesome. 
we should totally be using this in investigations, right? This chapter was originally a scholarly paper published by the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University in 1986. While the article has been cited a few times since then, the proposed format for recording anomalous encounters has never been expanded upon. That's why we now have additional levels on the close encounter scale. But there is no EEC typology, because it was never delineated. It seems like this proposal never really made it beyond this publication. That said, there is a reason it is in this book, and why it should be still considered for future use. The more weird encounters that get recorded, the more researchers realize that there is a ton of overlap between otherwise unrelated phenomena. If we use a system like this, we could compile data that would give us a bigger picture of, say, unexplained lights throughout time, or encounters with hair-covered creatures, or abduction scenarios where the person is taken someplace surreal. While we may not have the extraordinary encounter continuum, we do have the next best thing on the horizon. Something called... Project Hera. And that is something I will be elaborating upon in the Patreon extension. This book is great. There are 17 chapters within it, each talking about a different aspect of the weird. But they're grouped together in a way that makes sense for a cohesive story. You don't even have to read it in order, either. I jumped around and read chapters whose descriptions simply caught my attention. This is one time where I didn't actually finish the book, though it is entirely due to illness and not from lack of desire. I may come back to this book and recap other articles as bonus episodes in the future. For those of you who want to pick up this book, I want to give you a heads up. Don't get discouraged by Hunter's introductory chapter. He has a very academic writing style that is very information dense. It's the type of writing where you have to read it, then reread it, and then think about what it is you just read. It's incredibly informative, but it's also sometimes a chore to get through. The good news is that every chapter is written by a different author and researcher, so you get a nice variety of writing styles and delivery of the material. As of the recording of this episode, the book has only been out for a little over a month, so it's still pretty new. If you want to grab yourself a copy, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. The Esoteric Book Club can be found on Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is from the song Fight Don't Fight and is used courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. If you want to help out the show, just share your favorite episode with a friend, or consider leaving me a review. If you want extended episodes, or to get extra episodes, or if you just want to hear your name at the beginning of every show, 
consider joining the Esoteric Archive at patreon.com. Archive members, stick around to hear more about Project Hera. For the rest of you, until next time, remember, stay weird. It's time, once again, to open the Esoteric Archive. This chapter begins with an author named Albert Rosales. You may have heard of him, but probably only in passing. He's a researcher, yes, but more in the way that an archivist is a researcher. He compiles information and data and presents it in a manner that allows people to more easily access it. The data that he collects is what makes this part of the deep weird. Albert Rosales collects humanoid encounters, like interactions with non-human entities. Hey everyone, Natalie here from The Pendulum's Path. If you need guidance, direction, spiritual connection, or more, then listen up. I have worked as a psychic and a medium for over three years, connecting people from all over the world with their loved ones in spirit, giving them insight and guidance into their current situations, the past healings that need to be worked on, and what it is they need to know today in order to have a better future. It would be my absolute honor if you would visit my website at www.thependulumspath.com. I also offer emailed readings for those with busy schedules too. Also, for you goblins who subscribe to the Esoteric Book Club, I have a special coupon code just for you. Enter the code STAYWEIRD to get $5 off of any order of $25 or more. Hope to see you there.